Well, thank you very much, and let's bless the Lord. Blessed are you, Adonai, our God, King of the universe, who has sanctified us with his commandments and commanded us to engross ourselves in the words of the Torah. Please, Adonai, our God, sweeten the words of your Torah in our mouth and in the mouth of your people, the family of Israel. May we and our offspring and the offspring of your people, the house of Israel, all of us, know your name and study your Torah for its own sake. Blessed are you, Adonai, who teaches Torah to his people, Israel. Blessed are you, Adonai, our God, King of the universe, who selected us from all the peoples and gave to us his Torah. Blessed are you, Adonai, giver of the Torah. Amen. It has been uh, two, a turnaround. Two months? It's been two months since we uh, did this last. But actually, the break will be somewhat helpful because this is really a change in tact. So, and really throughout the <clears throat> throughout the rest of the study, there is a there is a decided change. I rearranged the study after it was written because of that, uh, because I noticed myself that there seemed to be a little more emphasis on one kind of thing at the at one part and in the other part. So I grouped them together. So we'll talk about why that is here in a moment. Whoever marries a righteous woman is as if he had observed the entire Torah from the beginning to the end. And that is why Eshekhail, or Proverbs 31, 10 through 32, is written according to the 22 letters in the Hebrew Aleph. Mm -hmm. So, Oh, it's not, yes, absolutely. There's lots of young Yalkut Shimon yeah. Uh, Rav Acha is the one who says. So our focus in the in the previous lessons has been very practical. We're learning the language of the bridegroom by observing the practices, both ancient and modern. In particular, the practices as they have come to us through the sages and then in through tradition that we can observe today. Uh, of the wedding itself. It's very practical. You learn to, s to find the things that are kind of cool in what you see and what you do in a wedding and somehow apply it in some way to you. So it's very practical. Uh, however, we're moving now into a much more ethereal place with regard, because we're going to read Eshet and you may be immediately going, ethereal? That's like so practical. I mean, it's talking about the ideal woman. And I want you to know, men that are married can't answer this. I want you to ask, answer the question, is there any woman that matches all of these? Married women can't, married men can't answer this. The answer is, no one matches this. No one. It's impossible. Well, no, it's not possible because it's idyllic. But the point is that it's something more. And the sage is like, this is more than just the ideal woman. This is something to this. Okay, so it brings up an interesting point. Peter has has prompted this discussion over the past six months or so <laughs> that we're going to have right now. This discussion about what is the purpose? Don't look in your on your outline. What is the purpose for metaphor, symbology, uh, uh, analogy in scripture? Is it permissible? We read the Torah as literal. Is it not literal? And then we sit around in, in study time and talk about all the cool mystical stuff. It's like, wait a minute. How does that work? Isn't that just as bad as traditional Christianity? So I, I would say 
from me now that Alabama, I'm not putting you on the spot. Well, yeah, but I was just thinking that <laughs> he Alabama, needs to be on the spot. Yeah, yeah. That allegory could be could be fun to you know talk slash think about as long as we're not saying that, that was the meaning of text and more like just using it as because it's so subjective. Your ca- your caveat your caveat is never mentioned by the sages. Okay. I, uh, no, I completely recognize your caveat, and I would agree with you, but I have to tell you, the sages never try and, and put a but in front of it when they say that. They are they are more straightforward. They are. Well, I mean, I think it comes back to the, the, the Pardes structure, right? It does. Absolutely. So, the Peshat is the Peshat, and... Can't be overturned. Can't can overturned. never be overturned. But, it, uh, but that doesn't take away from other layers of meaning at different levels, whether it's you know, uh, uh, a Jerash level allegorical. You know, for example, Eshekhael, Proverbs 31, is, is understood not to just be talking about a literal virtuous woman, although it clearly is. Yeah. You couldn't argue otherwise. But it's also understood to be allegorical referring to wisdom, because yeah. wisdom is Chokmah, which has a which is a feminine word. And so it's an allegory of wisdom, and wisdom is resourceful, and wisdom is is, is to be valued and treasured, and etc. Right? So uh, both interpretations are completely valid. Valid? Tell me, okay, tell me the issue. I mean, listen, I know this, I know that, I know the discussion, they are not aware of our discussions in the past on this issue, so... I'm I'm completely sympathetic to your position. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's valid, but not necessarily true. Which is, I'm, I'm going to stick with her. You're, you were you know no no no, no, no. <laughs> you were trained well, young man. <laughs> but so, it's not being a stickler for truth. You were trained that don't make stuff up. Right. Yeah. Right. And you can make the Bible say anything you want it to say. Using okay, now that's a very good point, and we're only going to spend a little bit more longer on this. And I knew I, w- I want to have discussion first because we're going to get into the allegory. Yes, I would respectfully disagree that if you dive into any kind of allegory, you can make the Bible say whatever you want because of, for example, Peshat. the Peshat, or even in church history, Origen, who's and uh, before him Philo. They also used a heavy amount of allegory, yet recognized that the surface level meaning of the text needed to hedge in whatever allegory they were doing. So I think that allegory, when taken to an extreme, yeah, you you can tend to get crazy, and that's what happens sometimes. Sure. I would also argue that most of our understanding of Messiah does not come from Bashat. It doesn't. It's almost all allegory. So if you're going to throw out the other forms, then your understanding of Messiah is... Yeah, limited, totally limited to that. New Testament Christianity. Yes, uh, and I think the Greek mind tends to be systematic and concerned about what's true and what's not. <laughs> you read my notes. Actually, <laughs> I didn't. Okay, but um, the, 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 the Hebraic mind is whether it's true or not is irrelevant to the point that it's making. Oh, man, you and, said it exactly right. And if you read the Gemara, it'll freak you out at first until you realize, oh, it's actually not. You're not supposed to read it literally. It's, well, actually, they don't almost, care. You can read it if you want. It doesn't matter. It makes Why more sense if you read it in the, in the, in the 
metaphor that, that I was trying to present. And here, here's the sentence I came up, and I don't know, paragraph, I don't know if this is good or not, but systematically Christianity has used metaphors, homilies, symbols to negate the reading of the Torah, literally. Judaism does the opposite, reads the Torah literally, and then uses metaphors, homilies, uh, symbols, etc. to promote obedience. So what's the goal of the allegory? This is why it doesn't matter if it's true or false. If it results in people following the Peshat, all for it, man. That's awesome. We want people to obey the scriptures. So if we tell stories, I'm not saying we make them up. And by the way, the rabbis didn't necessarily make them up. They, they read stuff because we're not native Hebrew speakers. We don't see all the weird stuff in the, in the letters. But they, they read it and they go, well, look at that. It's got an extra letter. It's never spelled that way except over here. <laughs> right? Well, they do that all the time. And, and we can't see it in English. And we make fun of them until we read, oh, wow, that's where they got it from. Wow. And do I feel stupid? Because the most outlandish stuff actually does promote obedience in profound ways. This is one of the things that, in, in, uh, again, mentioned this, the Sages series, the three-volume Sages by uh, Rabbi Lau, just, just supreme. But one of the really good things about volume two that he goes into depth with is after the description of the, of the, of the Holy Temple in, in 70 of the Common Era, Judaism became what he calls innovative. Well, man, if we read that today, we'd be like, well, I'm kind of orthodox, not completely, but I'm kind of orthodox, like innovative? No, no, no. We, we don't have a living constitution. We have a constitution. The Torah is set in stone. That's not what, he's, that's not what he means. Innovative in the sense that he keeps, they keep finding other things within the literal text as they explore it, not to lessen obedience, but to promote obedience. It's pretty, it's pretty. And when you read that and you start thinking about it, it's like, I mean, you can think of a lot of things, you know, traditions that we do today. We kind of, you, you may, you may, you know, say, well, I, that's a little, little over the top. But then when you read the basis for it or where it comes from, then you start saying well, that, that was an innovation. Well, that actually made it a little stricter. Yes, that's right. Not always. Sometimes the innovations actually make it less strict, but never overturning the clear text. That's the key. The key is this. Promotes obedience, but never negates the clear. Whereas Christ, traditional Christianity, in their use of symbolism, I would argue their primary purpose was to overturn the Jewish stuff. That's their primary purpose for using symbolism. To overturn it, to make it mean nothing, Judaism is not has never given themselves permission to do that. They 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 would blanch at the thought. We can't do that. You you see it even in the keeping of the Sabbath and the turn to the first day of the week. Yeah. Same same kind of thing. If if you ask them, how did we move to the first day of the week? Everything they give you is some type of metaphor, yeah. homily, symbolism, something. But not the text, not the literal text. So I, I understand that people, people, those of us that have come from traditional Christian backgrounds have been, have a ironically a resistance to the metaphor, a resistance to the symbol. Although that's the theology that Christianity presents, because based on Greek philosophy, it's built upon building a system. Everybody has to agree. It's all in the mind. Therefore, it's all a picture of something. As opposed to the Hebrew mindset, which says, the pictures are everywhere, but the pictures are trying to tell us what to do. Remember, even though we don't derive halakha from 
from Agada or Hagada, right? We don't derive halakha from it. We use Agadic tales to promote the be- obedience to the little text. So when you're reading and you're reading some story and you're going what? And it's and we say we don't derive halakha. It's like, well, there it is. It's a halakha right there. It's like, no, 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 no. That was showing you why it's a good thing to keep this tradition. Yeah. Well, and I think that I mean, perhaps one of the most famous Lighter examples, place. most famous examples of um, the use of midrash is Yeshua's parables. I mean, he's using stories. Whether or not they're true is irrelevant. Some of them may be. Some of them may not be. But That's heresy in, in a conservative theology, uh, seminary. Right? But his whole point is to teach principles that reinforce other elements of the Torah, which is exactly what this is trying to do. So it's like, is is Proverbs 31 talking about Shabbat? Maybe, maybe not. It doesn't matter because we learn cool things about Shabbat from that that we sort of already knew, and this just reinforces that. It reinforces it. You're not getting anything new. It's reinforcing and parents of small children... But whether they're, they're, they're religious or not, they tell the story of the boy who cried wolf, George Washington coming down the church. And nobody says, is that, that true? Right, and, and that's not supposed George to be Washington true. It's, it's, supposed to be, it, it's supposed to have the, the moral <laughs> significance. The George Washington one, because he's a real person, may be problematic for some people, but no one has a problem with the boy who cried wolf. But nobody goes, wait, is that a true story? Or did that come from a believing rabbi? <laughs> I'm serious. Think about it. We don't do that. People don't do that. You know, they all want to point their fingers when they start coming to a rabbi or show me in the text or whatever else, as, as opposed to saying, listen, God speaks in the language of men. He gave us minds. He gave us language. We need to use them as long as it's consistent with the scripture. Yes, sir. Just to tag along with that, even the business world has taken that same approach it's just a simple facts tell story sell it's the same thing you can give somebody facts and products and features all you want but once you tell them the story and get them emotionally involved right. and actually remember it better yet get somebody else to tell a story this is what happened to me when I tried that product alright All right. that's enough of that I'm setting the stage because as we move out through the rest of the study we're going to we're going to spend a lot of time in the the allegory so now we'll dig deep into one of the most famous chapters of Scripture, Proverbs 31. There's not a person that loves the Bible that doesn't love Proverbs 31. It's like, it's idyllic. It's up there with Psalm 119, Psalm 1, right? So, Eshekail, which means what in Hebrew? In English, excuse me. Valorous woman. What do you say? I heard valorous woman. What was over here? Virtuous. A virtuous, virtuous woman. Any others? An accomplished woman? Anybody got an accomplished woman? Can I get... A warrior woman. A warrior woman, yeah, that's right. Yeah, so what does it mean? It's 10 through 31, not 32. 30, uh, 22 verses presented in an acrostic of the 22 letters of the Hebrew Aleph Bet. Now, anytime you see the 22 letters of the Aleph Bet in Scripture, it's supposed to get your attention for a reason. It's not just a poetic thing. It actually means this chapter should be of special interest to you. The sages consider these 22 verses to be practical, representative, and metaphorical. What do I mean by practical? Can you should, your wife should do these things. Or if you're looking for a wife, find one that's like this. Okay, that's practical. What about representative? An idyllic type state. Yeah. Or we know some people like this in the Bible. Sarah. Rivka. Rachab. Well, no, she was a prostitute. But she was <laughs> repentant. Hey, <laughs> <laughs> Actually, Rachab comes into this. She's in here. 
Uh, practically, these verses describe the ideal Jewish woman. Representatively, they describe various historical Jewish women. And metaphorically, these verses reveal the qualities of Israel, the Torah, the Sabbath, wisdom. Yes. Highly desirable things. And the clincher is they represent us all. Hmm. So, Aleph, the first verse, verse 10. Somebody read verse 10 to me. Looking fun at earth as woman, her price is far above rubies. Yeah, I don't know about you. If you don't know anything about gems at all, rubies aren't that expensive. She's far above rubies. Okay, she's far above rubies. <laughs> so Eshet means a woman. Eshet is a woman, right? Eshet is, that's clear. We know it's a woman. A woman of some sort. But what's Chayil? Joshua, Joshua said, a warrior. Because actually the best word up, the best word up there of all those is probably valiant. Something along those lines. The first usage of uh, of Chayil is in Genesis 34, 29. And it's wealth. A wealthy woman. Who can find one? <laughs> True story. <laughs> True story. Uh, Joshua's pulled it out from maybe from Bill Gaon said that Eshekael is a warrior. Chayil is strength or warrior. And it is. It's very it's very related to strength. It always says strength as part of this key. And, and I mean, not that you can necessarily take modern Hebrew and translate ancient Hebrew because they're different. But in modern Hebrew, if you say you're in the army, you will say you're in the Chayil. Yep. In well, fact, one of the early, uh, uh, one of, also one of the earliest mentions was Pharaoh's Chayil, his, his, his army. His, actually, it was his elite elite troops in chariots so these are so I mean have you really thought about that you know if you're looking for a wife or you have a wife you thought of her as arm wrestle a warrior woman those have those of you who have wives that you feel like really fit the description of Kail in this in these verses you know that this really is her her sterling quality is the warrior woman this is the one that really you know, this is the one that really makes her who she is. She's fighting a good fight. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Exodus 24-7, Romans 7-21. This is, you know, almost without fail, the sages agree that Eshekhail helps her husband obey God. That's her primary benefit. You know, there's a good woman behind every man. There, there isn't. There's a good woman behind every obedient man. Um, and if, the, if that obedient man doesn't have a good woman, he'll be better if he has a good woman. Right? Chayil is one of the reasons why she's worth, in, in practical sense, far above rubies, is because she enhances your sensitivity to God's commandments. That's a remarkable. Uh, How can I sign up for that? Commentary from Lisa um, Douglas, and she was saying that. Um, Women have enormous responsibility with men because if you look in the scriptures, there are like zero stories of a good woman with a bad man. Yep. There are bad bad men who become good men because of good women, and there are good men who become bad men because of bad women. But basically, the type of character that's in the woman ends up so strongly influencing her husband that she can't turn like you can't. A good guy can't live with a bad woman. 
I spent about three weeks reading what the sages said about this, these, these 22 verses. And it, it's remarkable because anybody that's read the Talmud or Pekeavot, at least part of the part in the, in the Mishnah, you might have come away with the idea that, you know, look, don't talk to a woman because, you know, it's just idle chat or whatever else. You might have come away with a sense, it would be incorrect, but a sense that maybe that maybe a little bit, I don't know, a little bit discriminating against women. You read what they say about Eshekhail, they are not. They hold her in the highest esteem. Bait, verse 11. Somebody read verse 11 for me. Got it. The heart of her husband trusts in her, and he will have, and he will have no lack of gain. Now, a lot of the sages said he will have no lack of gain. Look, this goes right back to verse one. Wealth. She she is going to she is going to provide for you such a uh, number one. If you follow God's laws, then you will be successful. If you if you if you treat people well in business, you know it will come back. There's a reward. But he trusts her also that while he's gone, when he comes home, everything will be in order. That, that's what I saw. You know, especially with the uh, the comments you gave us and, and the things, and I feel this way about my wife, and I'm I'm willing to bet real American dollars, pre-inflation, that he feels the same way about his wife, yeah. and you feel the same about yours, that over the years you've established such a trust that there's there's gain in knowing that this particular one is in charge of your affairs. Mm-hmm. So you, you go out to work, you come back, and your affairs are in order. That's right. Because you've got a great steward. For me, for me, it's really well illustrated because I travel, not all the time, but when I do travel, and, and at least most of our marriage life, we always joke because we've only been mad maybe half the number of years <laughs> because I was gone half the time. But anyway, the, uh, but I used to travel much more, and uh, that was it's, it's like when I came home. It was a ritual. I come home, uh, Janet would tell the boys, don't say anything other than say hello, welcome back. Don't say anything to Dad until he comes out of the room, you know, out of his room. I change clothes because I come in in a uniform with a suitcase. First thing I do is unpack my suitcase. Then I change out of my uniform. I don't do anything until I get out of my uniform. And it's not because I don't like it. It's just because it's part of that idea that I was away and now I'm home. It's, it's, it's part of being home. That same feeling coming home, knowing that everything is exactly in order. She learned this, because it wasn't this when we first were married. She learned this, that it really bothered me a lot when I came home, and she had a list of all the bad things that had happened to her while I was gone. I knew bad things were happening to her, but it made me feel awful that I wasn't there. So she made a point of making sure the boys and her never came to me with all the bad news when I came home. Because you've been saving it up, man. <laughs> they didn't. Well, that's the impression I got. Heart of my, my heart trusts her. I come home, I know everything's in order. She's handled everything. Not only well, she's handled it better than me. Moshe, uh, Moshe Asli said that Eshekhael is completely trusted by her husband because she determines what is permitted and forbidden in the house. This is a really remarkable thing. People think that in really strong households where you have a strong male and he's especially, if he's Torah observant especially, but even if he's not very conservative scripturally and, and biblically, that somehow he sets the tone. And that may be true in a, in a broad sense, but in knowing what's permitted in the home, I can guarantee you it is the wife 90% of the time. She's saying this is what's permitted and this is what's not permitted. Even in non-religious homes, you find that's true. She's setting the halakha. That's right. So if you recognize this, 
This is something that should be promoted and fostered in your relationship. Rick, I'm probably the most anal of every guy here. No, no, I'm pretty, I'm pretty much there too. <laughs> um, that's true. <laughs> um, but that's that's the way it is here, and it's not because I'm unwilling to say how it will be, but my wife is doing it here. Yep. It's this is her realm. It's her realm. I've given that to her. Yep. And and basically, she sets the halakha for the house, and they must obey. If they don't obey her, then. I'm the one who's dealing with an inability <laughs> or an unwillingness to remain under her authority. Right. And it's the authority that I've given her Absolutely. to run this. And it, and it works. If you look at the way the world treats this, they turn this upside down. Chayil, who's the, who's the warrior? I mean, what is the, you know, what is the old caveman uh, caricature represent? Well, he goes out and fights the battles and the, and the little woman's at home in the cave making sure... Trains the girl home with right? her by her hair. Right? And this is exactly the way our culture has treated women that stay at home. Somehow, you know, they're the little women that stay at home and the man's out there, you know, braving the world. Eshekhail's the warrior. She may be at home, but she's the warrior. Abraham's confidence to Sarah is emblematic. You know, First Peter 3, 1 through 6. Somebody's got it. Can pull it up for me. I have it. You have it. You always have it open to Peter, right? He's <laughs> memorized Peter. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, by submitting to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. Are you, and you are her children, if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Sarah was profoundly strong. Profoundly strong. We see that this week in studying Kaiserah, looking, looking at her life. Her name means strength. You know, that's very similar to Kael. Her name is the is the is the is the name that you'd give a warrior, conquering warrior, you know, a Tsar. So she's like uh, she's she's very, very much in control. Yes, she calls Abraham Lord. She submits to him. Where was that submission when she came to him with advice? Send that woman out of here. And God said, Listen to her. <laughs> So Sarah's, Sarah's very careful. You watch what happens. You watch this. And you, you find this is true in other people's lives and marriages. You see it's true. That strong woman is a public persona or even a family persona. It's but when the doors are shut that she speaks to her husband. Not, not necessarily in a disrespectful way, but that's when she really says what's on her heart. When the doors are open and everybody can see, she's in absolute, complete submission. This is Sarah. This is powerful influence of without a word. Well, the way it works, at least in my experiences, behind closed doors is when God speaks through her. Absolutely. Yeah. If you don't, if you haven't figured this out yet, 
Let me tell you something. When your wife says something to you privately, she doesn't say it to anybody else, you better listen. <laughs> or, or when you're our age, you'll have stories to tell right. when you didn't. But this, the interesting thing is, now we're talking about a woman's advice as being very, very powerful here. But here in First Peter, he's saying without a word even. Wow. That means her character, borne out by what she does, her lifestyle, is more profound for her husband than anything. She guards me constantly without saying a word. Over the years, I've had people come to me with marital issues or whatever else. What can I do about my husband? He doesn't want to follow me in this. This, well, you know, for before it was a Torah walk. You can't. He doesn't want to be. He doesn't want to come to church with me or whatever else. Now it's like my husband doesn't get this, you know. And I want to, you know, I want to follow the Torah. What should I do? I said, obey your husband. Well, wait, that means I'll be walking away from God's word. I said, listen, don't disobey God's word, but you need to submit to your husband. Not only that, even if you obey, you should obey in such a way that is not a confrontation with what he's telling you not to do. You need to obey in such a way that he can be convinced by your attitude that it's a worthwhile thing. Wow, that's a changed woman. She used to, she used to nag me into doing the right thing. Now she doesn't say anything. She just does it. Yeah, that's exactly what he's talking about. So, she's batach balev, her husband's heart safely trusts her. You know, she's good in so many ways, but especially this intuition. Matthew 16, 9, with submission comes great authority. Here's the submission. This is where Yeshua gives authority to his disciples. His disciples are not masters. They are disciples. They worship him. They are at his feet learning from him. He gives them authority to exercise. This is much the same way. So submitting, a wife submitting to her husband is not to say she's a doormat. It's that she's been given great authority. Gimel, Maltutov, verse 12. Somebody read verse 12 for us. She, she does, does some good. <laughs> she does some good and not evil all the days of her life. I have highlighted all the days of her life. Those are some of that didn't do your homework, tell me what you think that means. <laughs> All the days of her life. So when she dies, okay, I find another wife. <laughs> she only does me good while she's alive. Is that it? The sages said something completely the opposite. They said if it had meant all the days of her life, it would have said all the days of your life, all the days of his life. Right? She doesn't good all the days of his life. So as long as he's alive and she's alive, she's doing him good. Right? Actually, I said the reason it says all the days of her life is because it means it never stops. The wife that you have now, she does you good. Not just now, she does you good for eternity. She, her value to you is eternal. Cannot be placed simply in days of our lives. Uh, Proverbs 12.4. Uh, Somebody read that for me. A capable wife is a crown for her husband, but an incompetent one is like the rot in his bones. Wow. Yeah. You know, uh, the unfortunate part of doing this study on Eshekayo is there's a, there's a converse. You know, there's the opposite. The opposite is, what if a woman isn't Eshekayo? Well, you can almost take every one of these qualities and you can turn around to the opposite. Wow. Women are either a great gift or a curse. Mm. Proverbs 19.14, she's a gift from God. This is absolutely true. A good wife is a gift from God. 
Dalit. Darshar Tzemer Ufishtim. Verse 13. Somebody read verse 13. She seeks wool and flax and works with willing hands. Here's the flax. All right, now we're going to get metaphorical. <laughs> she seeks wool and flax and willingly works with her hands. Okay, my wife's an American. She grew up in Texas, so she knows something about wool and beef. Not <laughs> 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 wool and beef. Yeah. Well, her, her grandfather was a chef, was a was a sheep farmer, and then later became a a, a, a cattle farmer. So she knows she knows about wool and beef. So, but flax, she doesn't know anything about flax. So. This doesn't apply to her. You can't have a garment that's woven between beef and wool, right? Six no. <laughs> wool and flax. Linen and wool. Joshua's point is correct. We see the flax. Flax is what you make in if you're if you're living in the land of Israel. There's not a lot of cotton, so what are you going to make your clothes with? You're going to make it out of what natural material? You're going to make it out of the skins. You make it out of flax. So linen is flax. So linen is from plants, has a limited wear. Not usually very warm, but it's it breathes really well. It's like cotton, right? Whereas wool, that's like comes from the animal. It comes from an animal. It's more expensive. It costs you something. The animal you can't you know you can't regrow it. <laughs> Take it from the animal. It's done. Actually, I guess the wool you can shear. Yes. Uh, wool also wool also is uh, can be colored, whereas flax is difficult to color. So it's a, a much more valuable. So, but she seeks wool and flax. And the, mention, and the mention of putting them together. There's outlines right over there. Well, there were. Have I got an outline there? Excuse me. <laughs> See, she's willing flax and willingly works with her hands. So, what'd you get out of that? Did you get that? Clothing is good deeds. Mm-hmm. Yes. Well, now we've told, we've been told this. If you oh. read Revelation 19, you've been yeah. told that right. clothing is good right. deeds. So this is the, the the white deal here is the yeah. actions, right? Yeah. Good deeds. I couldn't figure out what the wool was. Though. Why wool and flax mix? Because the are. Mine are flax. I have white only for those of you on the on, on the recording. I have white tzitzit. There's no tefillin in it. I have flax. I know. <gasps> well, I haven't disobeyed. I just haven't obeyed completely. <laughs> I had tefillin on this morning. How is that flax? This is flax. Well, this is the equivalent to flax. This is actually cotton. You can't you can't dye that. I can't dye this easily. But you can dye wool. What can I dye easily? Wool. wool. What's tefillin? Wool. wool. So when you wear, you have if you have tzitzit on with tekelet, you have mixed. You have mixed. But it's not a garment. You no, no, it it's a garment. You have mixed tekelet on the garment. You have mixed wool and linen, or the equivalent. It's the only time, except for the high, except for the priest's clothing, high priest's clothing, that you can mix. That's the point. The reason why we wear tekelet in our tzitzit is to say, I'm not a priest. But this is like a priest. I would argue Reminds it's, it's not the garment. You're tying it on the garment. That was it's definitely metaphorical I, of the So, priest. let me ask you this woman. Dalet. Darshar Tsema Ufishtim. She seeks wool and flax. Why is she seeking wool and flax? She has sons. She makes zitzi for them. Well, no question. Well, that works. Yeah. Wool, wool and flax, once they're... Once they're processed, uh, 
their natural color, if I'm not mistaken, is white. That's right. Right. So, and we see throughout the scripture, you know, uh, robes of white, garments of white for the righteous. And that's what this is. Clothing is good deeds. So the wool and flax is for clothing, not just seed seed, right? For clothing, it's good deeds. She's she seeks good deeds. We're we're only just we're just skimming the surface here, guys. There's a lot deeper stuff. <laughs> and you really can't. I mean, I think the closest connection to good deeds here is in the Zitzi. The Zitzi actually represent the commandments of God. That's right. They are good deeds. Because like, when you see them, you will remember the commandments. So it's like, it's as though the Zitzi themselves are the good deeds, literally, of the Torah. If you see other people wearing Zitzi, it should keep you from sinning. Seeing other people. Revelation 19, 7 through 8. Peter, would you please look this up and read it? I would appreciate it if you would. I'm picking on him because I love him. I have it. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory. No. no. 19. No. 19, 7 through 8. Yeah. Okay, go ahead. Go ahead. Keep reading. It goes into this. It will. God start bless this. the reading of his word. <laughs> Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory for the marriage of the Lamb has oh, come yeah. and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. There you go. Who knew, you know, who knew that John would fit so well with the sages by saying, oh, that's just obviously clothing. It's, it's a good deed. It's a good deed. <laughs> She's going to come back to this because this woman does a lot about clothing. <laughs> and we know that women are really a lot about clothing. Uh, clothed in fine linen that is flax, righteous deeds. In Deuteronomy 15, 37, no, no, you need to no, look this no, up. No, numbers. 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 So, thank going. you very much. Deuteronomy is not this. Numbers talks about the ZZ. That's right. Yeah, you know what it was. I was, typing, That's right. I was typing three paragraphs and I got numbers... Or Deuteronomy 6, Deuteronomy 11, and I go, okay, what's the third paragraph? It's Numbers. Deuteronomy does mention it. Though. Yeah, Deuteronomy does, but not in 15. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for catching that. Sorry about that. ZT are threads from wool and flax tied together. Any more to add on Dal uh, Dalit? No, but I didn't realize. I thought the ZT were 100% wool. So that's They're mixed. The white is not. Because they all feel the same. Well, Our modern seeds are today, not flax, but cotton. Right. And actually, they're, they may be some sort of rayon at times, too. They bounce a little bit like maybe not. <laughs> but uh, the zitzi, the tekelet is supposed to be wool. Yeah. I don't know if they always are, but they're supposed to be wool. Some of, them, some of them that you buy actually are all wool. Yeah. Here's, here's, the, here's the idea behind it. In ancient times, the dyes were very bad. They didn't last. Tekelet is actually a very good dye. It lasts. The problem is it doesn't it doesn't bond it stick. To, 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 to plant material. It bonds best, and this is wool is always this wool is a very good bonder to dyes. So to kill it, that's how you know it's wool. Is because you can dip you can dip flaps into into kill it dye all day long and it'd good be good for a little while, but it'd fade pretty quick. Textiles, man. Textiles. Uh, now our modern textiles, you know, they're they're really good at dyes, and you know they get all sorts of funky stuff, and you could do tequila on anything, but that's not real tequila. <laughs> <laughs> hey, hey, Heike Kenyon Soche, verse fourteen. Somebody read it. She's like the merchant ships. This is one of my favorite. She's like the merchant. She's like the ships of the merchant. She brings her food from afar. Uh, 
That's only a funny. Oh, I'm sorry. That's, that's, that's it's like a ship owner. It's a merchant merchant ship's foghorn. That's one of those sounds. Well, usually when I read this in English to my wife on Arif Shabbat, usually I have some funny little thing that I'll add. Well, funny to me anyway. Funny little thing that I'll add in there that she's done during the week. And usually on this one, I can add something pretty easily. She brings her food from afar. You know, something she brings her spaghetti from afar or something. Whatever. (laughs) Uh, She's like the merchant ships. So Rabbi Moshe Ashley, I love this guy. This is actually a really cool guy. uh, he's not a he's not a sage of of, of ancient times. He's a sage of of, of the uh, uh, not the Rishonim. What's after the Rishonim? So the Akhenaten. Yeah. So he's like you know, I think it's actually 17th century. Uh, the best times. <laughs> he's the worst of times. maybe a little bit. <laughs> that was a good book. Anyway, uh, he said the mer- merchandise is are good deeds. I love this. And the ships are. Awesome. That was. The ships are. Awesome. And if you know the Midrash, that one soul departs every night when goes to bed, then this is even kind of cooler because it's like the ships are, the soul is literally transporting the good deeds to heaven. To heaven. heaven. That's the whole point. Y'all have heard the story before, maybe not, and if not, I'll take just a few minutes to tell it. You've heard the story, uh, it's been told in messianic circles for a number of years, about the parable of the of the of the man who's shipwrecked on a on a desert island who he thinks it's a desert island. There's actually natives there, and and the natives just they, they he's he's like their lost king. He doesn't know who they are. But they think you're the guy we've been looking for, and they they put him up in the best little hut, and they they give him all sorts of best food and clothes, and he's like living high in the hog. And one day he's looking, and there's an island across the way, and he goes, "What's that island over there?" And they go, "Oh, that's where our our other kings went." Your other kings? Oh, yeah. Oh. When our new king shows up, our old kings go over there. And he goes, can I go see? So they take him over to the king, that place, and there's all these bones everywhere. And he's saying, what happened? And he goes, well, he didn't have any food or anything. I mean, it's like, that's what happens. But we can't bring our old king. We can't keep our old king with our new king. So he's thinking, okay, the next guy that gets shipwrecked, I'm the old king. What do I do? So what he did was he gave instructions to this his subjects that they should build a nice palace over there on a, a nice hut stock, over there on the other island. Then they should stock it with all sorts of food. This is she, She's like a merchant ship. She brings her food from afar. She's laying up her treasure. This is exactly what she was talking about. She's laying up her treasure. This is what she's known as. She's like the merchant ships. She's con- her good deeds are constantly laying up treasure, and she's it's her soul. This is not something that she does... Flippantly, it's it's her being. Her good deeds are part of her being. It's her essence. It's her essence. Yes. Proverbs fifteen six. By the merit of her good deeds, she brings true treasure to her home. Do you believe that? Somebody read Proverbs fifteen six. In the house of the righteous, there is much treasure, but trouble befalls the income of the wicked. You know, we could argue. Hey, look. There's a lot of righteous people that are poor. And there's a lot of wicked people that are very rich. What's true treasure? And when you begin to see that true treasure in your wife or future wife, the true treasure in good deeds that she, because she's been carefully selected by Hashem to be joined to you, that's a pretty powerful thing. Wow, it's like, can you not see that as a gift from God? Wow. I can't believe that this grace has been given to me, that you gave me this woman that is laying up such treasure for us. 
Matthew 16, 9, Eshekayil's true worth to her husband is incalculable in this life. Even the treasure evident in her children's lives. This is one of the things that it's, you know, that we're going to get to it next, uh, next time we do the study, but the whole idea that her children rise up and call her blessed is evidence of this. She's, she's, she has a lasting influence. But it's not just lasting influence, because fathers have lasting influence too. It's not just lasting influence in the sense that, well, that was my dad, you know, or that was my grandfather, or that was my great-great-grandfather, or whatever else, and wasn't their life cool and all that. She has lasting influence because she has not only helped physically create these children, the children are the direct result of her molding. She's a righteous woman. Fathers, we can take some credit, because obviously God has placed us where we are. But the real credit to the to the children goes to the wife. Amen. If she's a righteous wife, but guess what? If she's not a righteous wife, when you see children misbehaving, don't point their finger at the father. The father may be to blame, but you need to understand the mother has a very important role that's not being filled. So she's like the merchant ships. What's she laying up in the storehouse? She's not only laying up storehouse in the world for the world to come, she's laying up storehouse for generations to come. That's, you start thinking about that. Wow. Man, it just gives you chills. If that were not the case, there would be no mention of matriarchs in our faith. That's right. My sons, I've taken them all aside and at various points told them, I want you to understand, if anything happens to me, your mother is always to be taken care of. And here's why. You'd have nothing without her. Amen. You'd be nothing. Everything that you have, you can say, God gave to me because of her. Mm-hmm. Vav. Vav. la laila. Think of Jonathan when I hear that word, la laila. <laughs> verse 15. Somebody read verse 15. She rises while it is yet night and provides food for her household and portions for her maidens. Actually, this is my favorite <laughs> um, you, uh, we experience this every morning because especially as it gets closer to the end of daylight savings time mm-hmm. our, our wake up time is prior to the rise of the sun so my wife is busy making breakfast before the sun has arisen so. very good this issue of she arises while it's yet night the, the, the sages are very intrigued with the, the, the symbology of here her rising while it's night night She's not merely industrious, is what they said. She's zealous. She's like, she's not just getting up because, well, it's time to make the donuts. You know, she's <laughs> jumping out of bed because she's got to get. She's got stuff to do. Okay. But the real thing that they want to focus on was that picture of darkness and night is death, or, or disaster, or bad news. That even when her, even in spiritual darkness, she can rouse her soul. Even when she is going through spiritual darkness, she can rouse her soul. She knows that the reward for good deeds far outweighs the temporary pain that she's going through. Somebody turn to Matthew 26, 36 through 45. Uh, Then Yeshua went with them to a place called Gethsemane. 
and he said to his disciples, Sit here while I go there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, it is possible let this cup pass for me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Then he came to his disciples and found them sleeping, and he said to Peter, So could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Here's the thing about here's the, here's the thing about Eshekayel. She recognized. I'm, oh, sorry. Well, you looked up like. Now, well, I looked up to see when the uh, stopping verse. Again, for the second time, he went away and prayed, "My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done." And again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So, leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying. Um, saying the same words again. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, Sleep and take your rest later on. See the hours at hand the Son of Man is betrayed to the hands of sinners. Wow. Thank you, Mary. Um, does anybody, I mean, not play the hypothetical and probably would have been inappropriate in, the, in, the, in that setting, but can you ever imagine Miriam and Martha, would they have fallen asleep? I don't think so. <laughs> <laughs> so Eshekiel recognizes that the physical that she's going through or her family going through or whatever people are going through can both help and hinder spiritual uh, senses Proverbs 20, thir- uh, 13 it's easy to be comforted so her zeal keeps her focused on the task excuse me it's easy to be comfortable she's not comfortable it doesn't matter anybody can be comfortable so she's, she lets her zeal keep her focused. Deuteronomy 8, 1 through 3. Somebody read that for me. The whole commandment that I command you today, you shall be careful to do, that you may live and multiply, and go in and possess the land that the Lord swore to give to your fathers. And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Remember, Paul's told Timothy, you know, bodily discipline or, or physical discipline is of some benefit. Uh, this, this woman finds... Uh, great benefit in discipline of any sort. She rises while it's yet night. Stuff. Every morning I get up and it's dark. <laughs> but I'm thinking about her. <laughs> All right. Zayin. Verse 16. Somebody read verse 16. She considers a field and buys it from her prophet. She paints a vineyard. So, uh, Sounds like she's like the farmer woman here, huh? She plants a vineyard. Is it the masculine? Anybody get the sense of what that means? It's in the masculine. The verb is in the masculine. She plants a vineyard. Plants is masculine. Remember, Hebrew, like many languages, 
to have masculine and feminine, the verb has to match, match the, the noun or the object. So she's, she plants, masculine plants. What do you think? Would be planting with his, the husband's authority? That's, that's actually, some of the sages said that. Yeah. Really? Sure. I've, I've done this. Yeah. I'm out there tilling and preparing for the planting. And that's the first step is to till and to prepare the soil. And my wife is right behind me and planting the plants in here. We're doing this together. It's cooperation. Now, in the... You know, in the symbology that the sages like to pull from this, obviously they pull into representative or whatever else, but in the symbology of this, what they were, you know, the metaphor, they're saying, well, she is us, and we're at work in God's vineyard, and, you know, we envision the field, and we plan it, but we recognize that God really did all the work. We, we did the work, but he did the work. Without him, it never would have been done. So that's what that's what the focus of the majority of what they said with regard to the change in in, in gender mm. of birth. That's cool. That is cool. It's pretty Christian. You'd be surprised. The sages come sometimes come across that way. <laughs> Jeremiah thirty one one through six. Israel plants in God's land. I mean, you think about this. It's like. You know, envisions a field. Actually, they, they spent a lot of time on this one. Various sages love this because they see they see envisions a field. Well, that's the land. That's the land of Israel. And I mean, they wouldn't have the land of Israel without God. So, but she envisions it. In other words, the way our minds—if we played this metaphor—we'd switch it. We'd say God envisions a field, and you know, and you know, we plant, but God envisions a field. Instead, it's. She envisions a field, and he plants it. God's much more at work in our good deeds than maybe we... I mean, we always say, well, you know, it's all because of God. But maybe he's much more involved in our good deeds than we even comprehend. Isaiah 65, 17-25. Someone look that up for me, please. And even um, when you take away the uh, predestination level sovereignty of God, um, even on a much more simplistic level, God is necessary to keeping the keeping of good deeds. I mean, the sages talk about that idea that you ask God for opportunity to do good deeds. He's the one who brings strangers across your path. That's why we bless him before we do a commandment, because we recognize that he's prepared this moment for us and that he prepared it in order for us to be blessed. Right, he gives you the food that you bless him for. That's right. Was there any commentary from Kazal on from her earnings? Yeah, because it says from her earnings. Yeah, there's lots. There's pages and pages. No, no, it's okay. Yeah, it's okay. Actually, every almost anything you can comprehend to have being important and the things you'd never have noticed if you just read in English, they, they love it. Right. They, they love these passages. Because I have used this verse, I've heard this verse used as that the wife is supposed to be in the workforce and the man is supposed to be at home. Well, okay, what do you think? I, well, 
Just based on the what's, tradition. <laughs> but okay, let's take Peshach. Yeah, let's look at the plain. What's the plain? Si- what's the plain text? Could we ever say that she can't envision a field and buy it? No, we can't say that. If, if your wife envisions a field and buys it, you can't say you can't do that because the Bible's well. No, the Bible doesn't say you can't do that. But I think if you put this in the context, this is where I think this is the thing. This is the problem with um, symbolism and allegory. Oftentimes, symbolism and allegory often only work within a very narrow context. So the symbolism, when they're incorrect, rather. Good symbolism and allegory that's healthy and can be the true meaning of the text. Maybe. Can be the true meaning um, of the text. Uh, are a bit within the context, a broader context. So in this verse, you could take this and extrapolate it to say, well, woman should be in the workforce. But if you fit it What's within, a workforce? Well, right. I need to know yeah, what a workforce is. A woman should be working outside the home. I, I don't know what that means. I'm thinking about this people right here. There's a field outside the backyard. No, no, not necessarily, but I'm thinking about these people right here. I'm sorry she's not stuck in a home. Right, but at the same well, what time... what is she doing? She's all over the place. But her, yeah, well, but well, again, look at the context she's of the entire chapter. The market. She, she is... She, she is, lives on a farm. She goes in and out, <laughs> but like she's got... She is sort of like based at home, as it were. In other words, her home... Work does not suffer because of her outside work, and that I think absolutely. That we're going to get to that point right there in a second. Yes, I, I think to, to help Joshua kind of tie that in well, we we don't need to worry about a cultural context as long as we keep with the context of the first fifteen verses. Of course, that this woman is such an asset to her husband. That he trusts wherever her she is to deal with all of his yep. life. All of them. Yep. She is she is not merely Susie Homemaker. That's right. one of the the dangers of this. And and I know that, you know, especially coming from a conservative Christian perspective, that's the ideal. Well, she's Susie Homemaker, she doesn't do anything else. And that's not the Proverbs thirty one woman. I think about the end when it says get rid of the fruit of her um, Wow, that's jumping ahead. Handiwork. Hey, that's but right. And her like, own works praise her in the gates. Yeah, it seems like that frees her up to do this. Yes, it does. We're going to touch on this in a second because I think that all, all of these are, are alluding to a, an issue that might come up. You say, well, if she's so busy doing all this good stuff away from home, then she's letting the home suffer. Planting, always harvesting. Did we get to this one? We didn't read it. So let's do that. I asked someone to look it up. So someone read it, please. <laughs> for behold I create new heavens and a new earth and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind but be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create for behold I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people no more shall be heard in the sound no more shall be heard in it the sound of weeping and the cry of distress no more shall there be an infant who lives but a few days, or an old man who does not find out his days, fill out his days. For the young man shall die a hundred years old, and a sinner a hundred years old shall be accursed. They shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build another. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For like the days of a tree shall the days of my people be. And my chosen shall long enjoy the work of their hands. They shall not labor in vain, or build ch- or bear children for calamity. 
for they shall be the offspring of the blessed of Adonai, and their descendants with them. Therefore they will call, and I will answer. While they are yet speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb will shall graze together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox. The dust shall be the serpent's food. They will not hurt or destroy in all of my holy mountain, says Adonai. Interesting. You're getting in touch now why the sages really like these, this symbology here because they think Eshechayil is Israel. Because that's what it sounds like right there. Not only Israel, but Israel receiving the reward in the Messianic age. But it describes this woman. Let's go read Song of Solomon. Yeah. Oh, we're going to do that too. I'm sure. That. <laughs> John 4 33 through 38, uh, harvesting uh, what Hashem has planted. The, the metaphor there is obviously the world is, is, the, is the field and, and gathering disciples for uh, Hashem is, is the reaping. Het, Chagrada Osmotnea, verse 17. Somebody read verse 17, please. Girds herself with strength and makes her arms strong. Yeah. She girds herself with strength and strengthens her arms. She strength, she, this, with strength, she girds her loins, is from, is from uh, Art Scroll. Not naturally strong. I know that some are. This is this woman we're describing, Eshechayil. Not naturally strong, she strengthens herself by motivation and discipline. Okay? She knows that her strength comes from Hashem. So, this is, so it's not that she doesn't recognize she has talents and, and merit. She recognizes that, but she understands that it comes as a result of God being a part of her life. She disciplines herself to enhance that. Psalm 29, 11. Somebody read that for us. The Lord will give strength unto his people. The Lord will bless his people with peace. So strength and shalom go together here. You wouldn't think they go together. Right? What do you, if you, if you have shalom, <laughs> everything's calm. You're relaxed. It's Shabbat. Right? You don't think about being strong. Right. Strength and shalom is an interesting combination. Eshechayil is strength and shalom. So uh, a strong military ensures peace. Absolutely. No, no, we understand this. Right. I'm just saying that from, from a from a modern liberal mindset, you'd right. think yeah. peace means... The peace thing is a, a big... You see, if you see peace. Not peace. That's, that's the problem. It's not peace. It's shalom. Shalom's totally different than peace. Having the shalom in the house. I mean, you constantly, shalom. not only in this chapter, but when you read through Proverbs, it mentions more times than I can yeah, remember yeah. having, not having a contentious wife. Because if you have a contentious wife in your home, yeah. you yeah. might as well not even live there. That's not like Eshek Hayel. But you better on the roof. You'd rather be on the oh, roof the corner of your roof. Yeah, corner of your roof. It makes sense. If I do something that upsets my wife, I'm now completely in the wrong, and the house feels uneasy yeah. because of my action. Yeah. It will mess up. Okay. Isaiah 12, uh, 11. Hashem is our strength and our song. Luke 6, 40. Somebody read Luke 6, 40 if you don't know it by memory. If you don't know it's by memory, a disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. Like his boy. 
So, look, the teacher disciplines himself as well. But the teacher is a, the whole idea is a teacher disciplines his students. Period. If you don't want discipline, you're in the wrong life. Wrong faith. <laughs> wrong faith. <laughs> Hebrews twelve eleven. Discipline yields the fruit of righteousness. So she knows this. She knows this. She rises well as all and what is yet night. It indicates she understands the purpose of discipline. Tent. Verse eighteen. She perceives that her merchandise is profitable. Her lamp does not go out at night. Okay, now we got Sarah. There's no question this is Sarah. Her lamp does not go out at night. You know. It is obvious and actually if you want to know, one of the reasons why that that tale of Sarah that her Shabbat candles never extinguished during the week, it's from this verse. Uh huh. Yeah. Isn't that cool? <laughs> Must be Sarah. <laughs> Who else could it be? She deserves that her merchandise is good. So what's enterprise? Well, that's deeds again, no question. And her lamp does not go out by night. What's night? Remember their death. thought. That's death. So she has eternal her deeds have eternal outcome. She knows this though. She knows her deeds. She discerns that her enterprise is good. She understands the value of good deeds. If, if the guys in the class did not read their homework and what you wrote on this particular one, I mean, it's it's extraordinary with the whole Egyptian night thing and missing the hay and yeah. holy cow. I mean, it's... it's well, talk, sorry, talk. We're moving on. <laughs> Actually, I'm going to get it here. Oh, okay. So, Belila. Thank you, Jonathan, for having <laughs> Always imprinting that word into our into our minds is such a great word at night. Right? At night has no letter A. Rashi says Exodus 24, uh, 12.42 is the only other place that Belila doesn't have a hay. What's up with that? What is Exodus 12.42? It's Pesach. This is talking about Pesach. So, her enterprise is good. Her lamp does not go uh, go out by night. It's talking about Pesach. The lamp of good deeds is not extinguished by death, but continues to burn. Which good deeds? Covenant good deeds. Mm -hmm. Not just, I was nice to those people. Covenant good deeds. Illustrated by Pesach. Right? That'll preach. Psalm 119.55. Remember his name in the night. Have you ever had a scary night? You don't have to be young to have a scary night. I had a scary night about six years ago. I was flying into Manchester. Unbelievable thunderstorms. Unbelievable thunderstorms. And I don't have enough fuel to go anywhere except right there. And there's a thunderstorm over the field. And I'm thinking, great. I just sent my son to Jerusalem. I just sent another son to Colorado City, and they're going to have to come back here for my funeral. I'm not lying. That's exactly what I was thinking. Or if your ice makers ever made noise in the middle of the night, you thought somebody broke into your house. <laughs> yeah, that's similar. That's yeah. Very, very close. Don't you make it? You hear the racket of a slide and it's not yours. <laughs> <laughs> the racking of a slide is always good if it's from coming your hand. Your hand. <laughs> okay, so you remember his name in the night. Here's the thing is, of the things that cross my mind, I, I can't say that I didn't remember his name. But the first thing I'm thinking about is, I'm going to die and my sons are going to have to come back here and be in my funeral. That's the first thing I'm thinking. 
remember his name by the night. I mean, obviously, we get the heart pounding, and we got to do stuff, we got to act quickly or whatever else. That's all understandable. But do we remember his name in the night? She remembers his name in the night. Right? Snap rack. Really? <laughs> <laughs> all right. So do you all know this song? The Lamb? The lamp, the lamp is the, the light is the mitzvah. The lamp it shines on is the Torah. Yeah. The light it shines is the Torah. So that's what Proverbs twenty uh, six twenty three says. And Yeshua says he draws on this and he and he points us that you're the light of the world. You know, don't hide it. You're the light of the world. So what do we do? We hide it. Under a bushel. Under a bushel. I took my seat. That's oh. I mean, I'm wearing I'm wearing full uniform today. Could you see my ZZ? Couldn't see him. I had a hat on, but you just didn't know that was my key. <laughs> All right. Yod, verse nineteen. We're almost done, guys. She stretched her out her hand to the distaff. Hands grasp the spindle. Hands grasp the spindle. What's up that? So she's spinning. Well, if she's spinning, what's she doing? She's making clothing. What's clothing? Good deeds. Good deeds again. But where is she making these deeds? It doesn't matter. She's stretching out her hand to the distaff, which are definitely not in her home. Yep. So, somebody go reverse 20 for me real quick. The other thing. Spindle? Spindle. What up? Just spindle and distaff. Yes, spindle and distaff are on, are all, 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 all no, spindle, and, spindle and distaff are, are, are pieces of the same thing. Oh. Yeah. Um, verse twenty. Somebody read verse twenty real quick. We're going to read it again. Stretch out her hand to pour. That's it. The pour. Yeah, she reached. That's it. Pour her hands to need. The sage said, verse nineteen and verse twenty go together. Yeah. You can't have one without the other. And what they said was, and this is what you guys were alluding to. She can't go out being industrious, doing good deeds for other people if she doesn't do it for her family. Right. So, her chesed begins at home first in private. It's with her husband, with her children, then with others. Now. Remember, we're not just stopping with picking on finding a great woman. Well, I'm glad I don't have to be the woman. This is supposed to be us. This is supposed to be Messiah's people. So we're not supposed to be abroad doing good deeds if we don't do them for the people that we love that are Preach closest it, to us. Preach it, brothers. Preach it, Chesed. What's chesed? Loving kindness. Covenant faithfulness. Hasidic. What are Hasidic people? Those are the, those are the charismatic folk, right? Joyous. Yeah. Pious. They are joyous, but why? Why are they called Hasidic? It's not because they're joyful. It's because, and what is piety? It's this loving kindness. They understand. They understand that there's a covenant relationship at work. We should understand this. There's a covenant relationship at work. There's a vertical covenant relationship, and a part of that vertical covenant relationship is a familiar covenant relationship. All of my family around me, I'm talking about Israel. I have a responsibility to show chesed. Because I have chesed. This supersedes grace. Chen is a good thing. Grace is a great thing. Don't misunderstand. But chesed is what binds us to God. It's what binds us to one another. That's what Titus 2, 2 3 through 5, and if you don't know, this is, this is the Titus 2 women. This is the whole thing where, where women are encouraged to teach younger women. What are they supposed to teach them? They're supposed to teach them to love their husbands, teach the young women to love their husbands, to be self-controlled, pure, 
working at home, kind, submissive to their husbands. This is that same thing, starting at home, and then, in verse 20, moving out. Now, verse 20, kaf, kafa parsa le'ani, verse 20. Somebody reads that. Well, that's the, she extends her hands to the poor. She extends her hands to the poor. stretches out her hands to the poor. Why does it say it twice? Anytime the sage is saying it's the same thing, you know, it's like nice poetry, you know, because it's parallelism. What is it? Emphasis. It strengthens it, number one. Whenever, whenever it repeats something, either the same way or differently, it strengthens it. You said before it goes with the previous verse, and doesn't the previous verse kind of repeat itself too? Yes, it does. Yep, exactly. That's a double-double. Double-double is important, and that's the point. Two halves of this verse. The first is who is humiliated. He's poor, right? He's humiliated by his need, okay? So she gives him secret. To the second who's completely destitute, she reaches out publicly and gives a double portion. I get, there's examples. You walk around Jerusalem, there's beggars. It's not because people are poor and hungry. Don't misunderstand. It's because people have hesed in Jerusalem. America lacks hesed. That's why you don't see people begging. That's why we want to hide. That's right. We don't want to see people begging. Let me tell you something. It's sad to see someone beg. No one should be begging. But you need to understand. The Bible says God will always give us the poor. Why? Because he wants us to respond. Chesed. So, in Jerusalem, you see people begging. You see those who are ashamed. You give. You don't give it openly. And then you see those that are openly begging in, in, in public. Obviously, just give it to them. It's fine. They're not embarrassed by it. It's okay. You're not hurting their feelings. It's okay. But the one, the one that doesn't want to be poor, that takes it very personally, is humiliated by it. You shouldn't do that. You should make it seem that it came from somewhere else. It didn't come from you. Y'all, did y'all read the story of uh, Gershon uh, Bird? You understand? Yeah, Gershon was a, just a just a wonderful man. Re- religious, probably for the last dozen years or so, lived in, in Israel, and uh, he drowned on his birthday this last year. And it was only after his birthday that his wife discovered a lady came to his door and said, "I need to tell you about your husband." Oh, great! What's this about? I need to tell you that I've been managing his money. No, I, he doesn't have any money. No, I've been managing his money for charity. What? He doesn't have any money. No, I've been managing a lot of money for charity. I give mo- he, he would give me money, and I would give it to people in ways that they weren't supposed to find out. He'd find people that, that couldn't pay for their seminary training, and he'd say, Oh! This special deal just came open, you know, and and uh, you know if you'll if you'll sign up for this, I get extra points on my credit card, and and you'll get you know your seminary paid for a year. Who knew? <laughs> or he do stuff like tickets. He buy people tickets to get wherever they needed to go on you know airplane tickets. And what he do is he'd say he'd send him he'd send him the thing. He said, hey, you sign up for this, I get credit for it. But please do it, and then you get the ticket for free. Well, they didn't know he already paid for. It. See, constantly did his hesed. Privately, secretly, the walls that there was a group called that would put prayers in the walls. That would, if you would send them an email, they would take your prayer and they would put it in the wall. They would pray for it for a year, and they put it in the wall. He paid for that. It, re- it reminds me of I, I just finished reading a biography on the Benny Shkai, and uh, there's a story in there when he was a young child, like five, six years old, 
his father would give him and his siblings on on uh, Friday morning. He would give each of them some money so that they could go uh, to the market and buy candy or a treat like that for Shabbat. And that was kind of like a well, family sure. tradition that he, in, in a way that he blessed his kids. Well, um, so he'd give out the money and, you know, and then that night as Shabbat started, you know, and then over during the course of uh, the Sabbath, he would, the father would see all of his children, except for the Ben Ishkai, they'd all be eating their candy or whatever treat it was they bought on Friday with the money game. And he would always ask the Ben Ishkais, Where, where's your candy? And he's like, oh, I already ate it. You know? And this went on for like, you know, like several years. Finally, um, his sister started to suspect something. So Friday morning, his dad hands out the money and they all go to the market and uh, but she follows the Benish High, and uh, he would actually kind of take a detour, and he was going to this old widow's house who, you know, was basically destitute and couldn't, you know, get out for herself. He would, well, he would go to the market, he would buy food, and then he would go to the widow's house and give her food. And this, and, you know, and this, he did this from, like, age five, six to, like, nine or ten, you know. Um, and it and it was the secret, same kind of secret, secret. Yes, it reminds me that when Julianne and I signed our house papers, um, this complete stranger courier shows up in my office and has me sign for this envelope. There's no name. Really now you're in the airport. It's really weird. <laughs> <laughs> I get the envelope and it's it's got my name written on it. It doesn't have any any other distinguishing marks. The inside is a little note that says for your new home. Again, handwritten, I have no idea what it is. And literally hundreds of dollars of cash. Um and to this day I still don't really know who did that. It, it, it almost kind of feels like God just blessed us. Well again, yeah. that's and that's the point yeah. is and that and the person that's showing this kind of testing knows that. You did the the reward that they have not just laid up the reward they have in giving is immeasurable. She knows this. Eshekhael knows this. This is why she's busy doing it. James tells us true and undefiled religion is caring for widows and orphans and those who are in prison. Lamed, because the last one we have here, verse twenty-one. Lo tiel le tev mishaleh. She fears no snow. Somebody read that for us. She is not worried for her household because of snow, for her whole household is dressed in crimson. Oh, red means something. It's the cross. Not only is it, yeah, well, not only is it red, not only is it red, she's clothed with crimson. What is it? It's wool. It's red wool. Red wool. It's definitely. Not Red Bull, Red Bull. If it was Red Bull, I'd be right there. Okay, she doesn't fear trouble or tribulation or Gehenna. This is what the sages said. She fears no snow for her household. Well, it doesn't snow a lot in Jerusalem, so it's not really a big deal. What are they talking about? It's got to be something more. It's got to be more something more. Not that they, she doesn't fear. The Eshekhael does not fear literal snow. But there's also something else being conveyed here. She doesn't fear. She doesn't fear trouble or tribulation or Gehenna. In fact, this is the thing they really wanted to focus on. Gehenna. She's not afraid of hell. Well, the fact that it does her household's clothed with good deeds. 
the fact that it doesn't snow often is why it's trouble, right? I mean, it's just like here in Charlotte. Who would expect it? The one or two days you know, it blows it down, <laughs> the whole city comes to a screeching halt right. because it's trouble when it happens. Right? Y'all, if you know Esha Kayu, you know she has no fear of death. It's true. Yeah, Shimoni says clothed in scarlet is the blood of circumcision. Whoa! Where'd that come from? Out of sight. It's like come on. There's the cross, baby. Yeah, it is a cross. Listen, listen. I want I want you to think about this for a moment. She's Eshet Chayil. She has sons. At eight days, father's supposed to circumcise, but you know she's the one that brought this little baby into the world. And if he, you know, it's going to be tough to get him away from her to snip, right? The blood of circumcision is the red. Anytime you read in scripture, we're first thinking circumcision. I was just going to say, it sounds close to uh, Moses and Zipporah, right? So, why does she fear no trouble or tribulation or Gehenna? My sons are circumcised. And my daughters are married circumcised men. It is good deeds, but she sees circumcision as very important. Why? Why in specific be about Gehenna? Yeah. So Father Abraham's there. He's outside. He's not in it. I'm sorry, there's no bosom of Abraham. Abraham's bosom was right here, his belly. <laughs> Close to it. Hug me, Dad. Right? That's Abraham's bosom. But he's outside Gehenna. What's he doing outside Gehenna? He's checking to see if there's... He's not Peter. He's not saying he gets to go in or not. He's checking to make sure, whoa, you don't belong here. Get away from here. <laughs> You're circumcised, buddy. <laughs> yeah. I don't know how he knows it must be. My next one is precious. So you may think that's a little weird. But no, no he, that's not weird compared to this next one. <laughs> No, no, actually, this is pretty cool. If I told you anytime God says something twice, cool. twice, yeah. the same thing two times, there's something important here. So Midrash Tanhuma says the spelling of scarlet is the same as two. Red and two are the same thing. It's the same word. There's no vowels there. It doesn't say her. she fears no snow for her household, for all her household is closed with two. two. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty cool. And they named these verses. I Why did they name these verses? Because these are the commandments that are double. You so open, somebody, uh, I got Deuteronomy fifteen eight. You shall open your hand to him and lend him sufficient for his need, whatever it may be. Verse the verb is repeated there. You shall lend, 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 lend. <laughs> you shall give to him freely, and your heart shall not be grudging when you give to him. Because for this, the Lord your God will bless you. Give, give. Give, give. Verily, verily. Verily, verily. Moses, Moses. If you think about this, now I want you to back up all these verses we've been going through. This, There's a very powerful thing. Her good deeds are often being exhibited by how she treats people inside and outside the family, but in particular, poor people or whatever else, right? These are the measurement of her good deeds, clothed with good deeds. And now it's talking about those two verses are talking about double commands that talk about giving to poor. Even my, you know, holy English Bible takes up on oh, this. Oh, it's, it's fire. Yes. There's a, there's a, there's a oh, footnote that says, instead of straw, or in double thickness. 
Double. Double. That's good. Red, red, red. Yeah. So these double commandments. Now, listen. We, we we need to pay attention when just when there's when they say just say something about the Hebrew that we don't find in the English. We need to know they know something we don't know. Okay. I like the circumcision thing. That's my preference. But I had to tell you about the two commandments. It's pretty. They could both be right. You shouldn't get circumcised twice. Well, in addition, it's also to the contrast. Your heart. Yes. In your heart, I got circumcised in my heart. Now do it for real. <laughs> um, it's also to the contrast that not hearing trouble with being generous, because one of the things that the sages begin on um, throughout the uh, the time when it talks about not uh, being begrudging, they talk about the idea that those who are not generous and are miserly will find that if they like they mistreat the, the poor and the orphan they will end up leaving their wives as widows and children as orphans. So they will suffer by not being generous to those who are needy, by becoming needy themselves. So she's not afraid of becoming needy she's because she's generous. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, just to, so that you know, you can understand a little bit of the sage's mentality when the sages say that a circumcision of a convert, uh, a proselyte, had to draw blood. Blood is the most important part of it. There's nothing to cut off. It doesn't matter. Cuts, cuts of blood. Is there a way to do that with us? Well, I mean, the idea is, well, I'm already circumcised. Oh. Physical circumcision is not... Snip something, baby. Snip something. (laughs) And actually, actually, y'all know this, some of you know this, the Talmud actually talks about people who come naturally circumcised. You know, there's nothing, there's no foreskins. What do we do? Make some blood. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Qualities of Eshet Kayel. We've talked about it in very, in very specific terms, specifically about our wives, making reference to other, other godly women. Uh, and it does represent the ideal woman. There's no question. We've talked about that maybe there's not a single woman that, that has all of these qualities. But the, really, the point of this language, and the sage is honed in on this, if this is Israel, or this is us, this is the people of God that's being described, then it's describing how we are supposed to respond in his world as our master. This is our response. So when we read about Eshekhael, it's not just an academic, I need to find a woman like that, or wow, I'm glad my wife is like that. It ought to be, this is my responsibility to be like that. And I want to focus on that word chesed throughout all of these verses. You see this constantly at, at work in her good deeds, that she is full of chesed, loving kindness. And this is what he expects of us. Final comments? Yes, sir. I think that um, through this particular lesson, it's astonishing to me that I, I find myself thinking about my own wife, thinking about your wife, thinking about his wife, thinking yeah. about the, the wives that are represented here, and, 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 and all that. But then, as, as you just pointed out, the flip side is we are also the bride. So, it, you know, if, if we're not looking at it's both sides yeah it's us and it's her it's us representing this to her it's us attempting to live this out for him i mean it's the whole there's the whole thing this is the walk this is this is life in covenant relationship with hashem both sides on the same coin it's unbelievable anything else gentlemen Blessing for the Zion. There's always a blessing. It's a blessing for
When the rabbis of old take leave of each other at the study hall of Red Amin, they would say to one, of, one another, you shall, see, you shall see your world in your life, and your end shall be with the life of the world to come, and your hope for many generations. May your heart ponder and achieve understanding. May your mouth speak wisdom, and may your tongue bring forth song. May your eyelids look straight before you. May your eyes be enlightened by the light of Torah. And may your face shine like the brightness of the sky. May your lips utter knowledge and your kidneys rejoice in righteousness. And your feet run to hear the words of the Ancient of Days. Amen. 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 Thank you.